0: These days, there are a lot of ways to be a leader in the Catholic Church. On this podcast, we'll take a closer look at the stories of the women and men who, through the sacrament of baptism, have been called into places of leadership in the Church. We'll hear about the practical realities of their ministry, but we'll especially take a look at the way God called them to serve. He could be calling you in the very same way. This is In Infinite Ways. Welcome, everyone, to the first episode of In Infinite Ways. I'm Brian Rood, the project coordinator for the Catholic Apostolate Center. And today I'm excited to be joined by Bishop Frank Caggiano from the Diocese of Bridgeport. Uh, Bishop Frank has led the Diocese of Bridgeport since 2013, where he has prioritized empowering young Catholics, creating opportunities for dialogue amongst the faithful, increasing formation and in catechetical resources and programs, fostering a spirit of accompaniment and so much more. Uh, Bishop Frank uh, also serves on four committees for the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, has spoken at three World Youth Days on invitation by Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI and now Pope Francis. And a point that I'm sure we'll get to at some point in our chat, Bishop Frank is also a great lover of food and cooking and our New York Mets, which for the first time in a long time, uh, are a good team and we can look towards maybe November baseball with them. So, Bishop, thank you so much for joining us on
1: this inaugural episode of In Infinite Ways. Brian, I'm delighted to be here. First of all, we have to pray for the Mets because this is the critical <laughs> moment, right? Right now. It's this time of the year. So we're praying. But yeah, I'm delighted to be here. And, uh, and, to, and I marvel at the project that you've come up with. I think it's just a tremendous idea to see the different ways that God uses his people to foster his greater will, which is to bring people the joyful news of Jesus Christ. It's tremendous. Absolutely.
0: Well, we're happy that you're our first guest. you are kicking off the series with you. Um, So that, so to get to that, then could you just why don't you just tell us a bit about your story? How did you wind up where you are right now?
1: That is a great question, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) I well, for those of who know me, um, and even if you don't know me from my accent, you realize that I'm a New Yorker. I was born and raised in Brooklyn, and um, in a time. In Brooklyn's life, which is very different from what it is now, a time of neighborhoods, a time where I grew up with almost all my neighbors known to me. Um, It was an overwhelmingly Italian and Italian-American neighborhood. So there was Catholicism everywhere, everywhere. We breathed it. And that, that begins my story because as a little boy growing up, uh, our faith for my mom and dad, particularly my mom, was just everywhere in our lives. We're at the dinner table, in our customs, in the food we ate, particularly in, in the holidays and the holy days, in the education I had, which was with the Dominican sisters and the Jesuit fathers in high school. So, Catholicism was not an addition to. It was like the fabric of everything I knew growing up. And that's where I think in the end, this whole idea of a vocation kind of started percolating in my mind, right? There was an attraction to church. I remember as a little boy, of course, in those days, you could walk to church and, you know, no one would bother you. And I would sit in the church for hours in silence. And I was 10 years old, 11 years old, and I felt comfortable and I wasn't totally aware that the Lord was there in the tabernacle. I had an intellectual, answer. but it was this time I spent with the Lord that kind of gestated in me. Yeah, he, he wants he wants me. I wasn't exactly sure what, but he wanted me. And then this idea of becoming a priest was just became clearer to me as time went on that I wanted to do something that, at least in my estimation, would have a real significant, lasting impact in people's lives. So after high school, I had the privilege of going to Yale. While I was at Yale, I thought to myself, if I really want to discern this vocation to priesthood, I should do it now before I I graduate. And so I did. And I, as you alluded to, I graduated the college seminary, Brian completely convinced. That I was not being called to be a priest. <laughs> that I wasn't, you know. God, and I, I, you know, you know me over the years. My personality is one that wrestles with things, right? It, that nothing comes quite easily. So I was, and so therefore I said to myself, "No, I think, I, I think I want to be married. I want to have a family because I love, I love family life." And so I, I worked for McGraw Hill, like you said, and it was a great time. But it was the time that helped me to finally discern that what I wanted was not necessarily what the Lord was asking of me. It was not what I needed in life. Mm. And then I returned to the seminary, and the rest is history that I, was, I served as a priest in Brooklyn and then auxiliary bishop of Brooklyn and now the bishop of Bridgeport, which for me is a tremendous privilege and honor. And it's amazing that nine years have gone by. It's like yesterday. So that's kind of like the journey. We could get into a lot of the details, but it was just all along the way, I always doubted. I always second guessed. I always put to the test the question of whether the Lord was asking me to be a priest. And every single time it rang true that that was ultimately what he wanted.
0: Hmm. Mm -hmm. So you spent – what, about a year and a half kind of working out in the world, Right. can you, f- for people, I, I would say, especially, I mean, I work, you know, I work with college students right. on a day-to-day basis, right? So lots of young men and women who are discerning and, mm-hmm. and discerning while, right, studying business or studying biology yeah, or studying. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, And even those who have gone out in, into the world and worked. So can you talk a little bit about what was that process like for you to be discerning while also, being in the world, working your job and trying to f- hear the voice of the Lord exactly. in all of that, to see the beauty in what you were doing, right? And the right. goodness that he was bringing out of it, but also seeing this call that the Lord had for you.
1: Well, Brian, it's, uh, again, it, I, would be, I would not be telling the full truth if I said that I left the college seminary still actively discerning a vocation to priesthood, because I was convinced that was not the case. So when I, within six weeks of leaving the college seminary, I landed the job at McGraw-Hill as the sales representative for the Greg division. So I had immediately turned my attention to say, well, this is going to be my life as a layman. And I was more interested in finding out if there was someone out there, some girl that God had foreseen could be my wife and put up with me, and we could have like a family. It'd be great. (laughs) And The job was perfect because I had clients in the larger metropolitan area. I traveled the country for for training and professional development. I had a district manager in Massachusetts who was a wonderful man, almost like a father figure to me because I was only 22 years old. Hmm. But like everything, like the hound of heaven, as much as I said, this is my path now, every once in a while, because I would still go to mass, of course, every Sunday, there were these, these, in my mind, I would hear, I would feel, I would look at the priest and say, but why aren't you, the, like, is that where I'm supposed to be? And I always dismiss it. And then there came a moment <clears throat> when I was in Pittsburgh on a sales conference meeting where We had had our meeting, we had gone out. There was a group of us of similar age. We just had a grand old time. Go back to the hotel, it was close to midnight, went to bed. And I woke up about an hour and a half later. And I was perspired, absolutely perspired through and through. And my first inclination was to say, my goodness, am I having a heart attack? And then when that said, no, of course not, you're not having a heart attack. And then all of a sudden it was like, it was literally in front of me. And the question that came to mind, which was simmering for months is, do you really see yourself doing this your whole life? Hmm. And in that moment of, I'm going to say grace to weakness, I finally admitted to myself, the answer to that was no. That there was something else the Lord wanted of me. And that's the moment when the discernment for vocation to priesthood became much more to the forefront. And within a few months, four or five months, I come to the conclusion it was time to go back to the seminary. So the Lord literally took me and shook me, right? Now, that doesn't happen to everyone, but because I'm stubborn, I could be even obstinate. It was almost like, okay, I gave you everything you asked for. Now, let me ask you the question again. Is this what you want for your whole life? And, and and in a moment of just brutal honesty, I said, no, I just no. there's something else missing. And so now it's been uh, 35 years of
0: priesthood, if my mm-hmm. math is correct, uh, yes. as of earlier this year. Um I think most people who will probably be listening to this show um, are pretty familiar with priests, right? They Mm -hmm. are going to mass. They grew up uh, going to mass. And so father was maybe around their house growing up Mm because mom would invite them to dinner or or they were part of youth group or served at the altar. But I think a vocation – a person maybe that people are maybe a bit less familiar with and maybe a bit less comfortable around is their bishop, <laughs> the person that maybe they only see at confirmation or if there's a new pastor installed or something like that. Um, so you have been the ordinary of the Diocese of Bridgeport since 2013. Right. Uh, can, you, can you say a little bit about, A, what does it mean for you to be... A bishop, this call to be a bishop, but also, what would you say to uh, the the members of the faithful who are maybe a bit apprehensive of mm-hmm. um, their bishop, or trying to get in contact with their bishop, or just seeing mm-hmm. their bishop as really the shepherd of their flock, which is something that I think you have put so much emphasis on in your time, mm-hmm. certainly in Bridgeport, but also uh, mm-hmm. in Brooklyn, of, of really being a shepherd.
1: Mm-hmm. Well. That's a great question. And I guess the answer to it um, would much depend on the context, because my experience of being a bishop as an auxiliary bishop in Brooklyn was very different than my experience of being the diocesan bishop here in Bridgeport. And in both cases, what's different essentially is the relationship that I had with my brother priests because as vicar general in Brooklyn, they basically saw me as much more of a fellow brother priest. I was a Brooklynite anyway. They all addressed me by my first name because that's how they knew me all those years. And when they had a problem, when they had a difficulty with the bishop, when they wanted advice, they would call me before they called the bishop. So I was almost like an advocate and I loved it. It was tremendous. Well, it was tremendous ministry. Now, as the diocesan bishop, I I do the best I can to be available to my priests. But you're always still, in some way, shape, or form, the boss, (laughs) (laughs) right? So there is that dynamic. And I think over nine years, I think more and more of the priests begin to realize, I don't want to be their boss. I want to be their father. Ultimately, I want to be their pastor. Hmm. So one of the dynamics that I guess people who are listening to this have to realize is uh, as your pastor is the pastor of his people, the bishop is really the pastor of his priests. Mm. So there's a unique relationship that should exist there, which unfortunately, because of the terrible scourge we have lived through, which is the sexual abuse crisis, many times that relationship has, has been hurt. Even if the bishop has no role in any of that, obviously, it's simply because there has been much institutional friction. So, but for the average person, I think it's the bishop's duty and responsibility to be available as much as he can be. And I try to do that because I don't stand on ceremony. I don't, it's just not in my blood. And, you know, I can't tell you the amount of people who have my email address who have my cell phone, who call me out of the blue. (laughs) And they'll start with, do you remember me? "Uh, Maybe not, (laughs) but but because I revel in that. When I look back on my 35 years as a priest, some of the happiest years I had as a priest was when I was the pastor of St. Dominic's Mm -hmm. in Brooklyn. And the reason I say that, Brian, is because I had a family there. I mean, I was with all of those people you know, in good times, and bad times, every Sunday in the celebration of the sacraments. As a bishop, you don't have that as much because you're kind of like going from parish to parish. So I hope people who are listening to this do not feel trepidation, particularly in my diocese, to reach out to me. I hope they don't feel that because my door is always open to the extent that it can be, you know, given the... the but I really hope and pray that my priests feel they have an open door me because that's really ultimately my ministry it's um as jesus spent according to cardinal cantalamesa in our retreat that he gave to the bishops a number of years ago he said 60 percent of the gospels if you look at them are jesus interacting with his apostles not with the people of god but with the apostles Hmm. then i'm hoping and praying that my priests have become very comfortable having that relationship with me right yeah and that's well, a unique ministry only the bishop can do right right mm-hmm. right
0: yeah i mean I, I i was just thinking back to the first time that you and i ever met uh it was in rome and uh i was a student at the catholic university of america at the time and had um we had worked with uh our our friend and colleague paul jarzymbowski from the usccb mm-hmm to to put out an invitation to the bishops that were present for the synod in 2018 to come to our campus in Rome and join us for mass and and for dinner and uh, we were so blessed that you and cardinal donardo agreed to come and it was such oh, a, right, right. a lovely yeah. lovely evening yes. but that i mean that to me is is synonymous with the um with the message that you have tried to send certainly the people of the diocese of bridgeport um, but I think the 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 wider church, for those that pay attention um to you, um, or or to the to that message, which is really the message I think that the Holy Father is, has been trying to instill within the church, that is being with the people, right? Pope Francis talks about smelling like the sheep. And so I really marveled that while you and and the cardinal were there for this synod on young people and the faith and vocational discernment that you took the opportunity to go spend an evening with young people to talk about the faith mm-hmm. and to be witnesses to the priestly vocation for for them. Um, and I said in, in your intro that you've dedicated uh, a lot of your time and your thought to empowering the young people of the church. Why is that important to you, why has that been such a focal point of your uh, Episcopal ministry in the Diocese of Bridgeport?
1: Well, I mean, oh, well, it is rightfully so. Um, not simply because you've you've heard Brian often, you know, that the, the young people are not the future of the church; they're the present of the church, and the, and they wanted, and rightfully so, and their voices need to be heard, rightfully so, and all that for those reasons. But there's another reason, I think, and this may sound a, a bit melodramatic, but I am Italian American, so this kind of comes naturally. <laughs> I mean, um, I think we are in an epical shift in human life. I think when the history of this age is written, it will be comparable to the introduction of the printing press and how it revolutionized every aspect of life. And I mean the digital and technological platform and the introduction of social media that is rewriting every aspect of life. And there are some who I think have persuasively proven that it even physiologically is changing the development of the human person. Hmm. And therefore, the young and young adults have the key to helping the church navigate this paradigmatic shift in a way that I could never have, regardless of the vocation or place I have in the church. So the voice of the young and young adults is absolutely critically important that it be taken seriously because they have experiences that are fundamentally different from mine. And I need to respect that experience, learn from it because what we do in the next 20, 30, 40 years can have an impact on the next two, three, 400 years. Right. That's why in some sense, so it's, it's not because simply they have gifts and talents and because they're loved and we wanna encounter and accompany them and help them encounter Christ because we would do that for every generation, but, but this generation, these generations, the last one, this one, and the one to come, they are a critical key to the long-term health of the church. To help the church to understand what they are living through, does that make sense?
0: yeah, no, it does absolutely and and you know working with college students on a regular basis, and we talked about this when I was on your show uh, you know a few months ago, right that the experience not just not just from you know whatever Gen Z to millennial or whatever kind of dividers you want to make, but the experience from individual young person to individual young person is so varied, um, and so it requires us to have a special attention to them as individuals. Right? Pope Francis says in Christus vivit that we can't um, we can't homogenize. Yeah. young people into one group when i was when i was at the forum uh, the post-synod forum in in the summer of 2019 one of the priests that was speaking he uh, made a kind of a funny reference he said uh, we that young people aren't aren't a smoothie they're a fruit salad and we all kind of looked at him with a with a an inquisitive look and he he went he went on to explain that you know in a smoothie you dump a bunch of fruit into the blender, but it all just becomes one kind of uniform mix. Whereas in a fruit salad, you can tell the apple from the grape from the banana from, exactly. the, from the melon. And that's how that's how we should look at at young people. That's how we should look at every every person, every child of God, right? As a unique individual who brings their own gifts and qualities yeah. and charisms to the table. Um so it's it's refreshing to hear from you, right, that exact sentiment that we can't. We can't just lump them all together, but that we have to learn
1: from them. And if I may, not only, yes, learn from them and also ask them to take leadership in helping us to decipher. How do you create the opportunities for the touch points of encounter with Jesus Christ that may be different than the ones I had when I was 20 years old? Like you alluded at the beginning, you know, for for me, the touch points of encountering Christ were basically many of them came from the culture of which I come from, and all of the rituals that accompany that culture. And a lot of it revolves around food. And around it revolved around shared meals and all of what the holidays came to mean, which was more than just the meal, but the meal symbolized a lot that was almost preconscious. It's a strange way of looking at it. But you encounter Christ, we all do through the mind, through the heart, through the will, through the community, and then through the the rituals of the church, the sacraments, the sacramentals, and then there are the, the rhythms of life, nature, all, there's so many different ways. So I guess my right now, a young person, I wonder to myself, what are the opportunities to encounter Christ that are new, that I didn't have? That the church should be saying, okay, let's go through this door for the first time and explore how we could – because remember, to actually encounter Christ is an act of grace. It's not my doing. It's not your doing. But we just set up the opportunities. We set up the, if you will, the the possibility. And then the Lord moves however the Lord wants, right, in the end. And that's where I think we're in a whole new world, right? And I'll give you a perfect example of what I mean. I marvel at the fascination and love that's being built up among young people, a a growing number of young people, for the traditional rituals of the church. Because I barely remember them. I've had no no recollection of them. And I grew up in a church where I find great solace and beauty and comfort in the rituals, in the English and all that. And yet, it seems like there is growing a touch point for encounter that I did not have. So how does the church respond, right? Without without suggesting that all the history that we've had in 50, 60 years goes out the window, because you can't do that, right? And community, my community was literally when I walked out the door. Now you build community online as well as out the door. So how do you do that? So I'm as much a student now as I am a teacher Mm. at 63 years old. Is that funny? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which is both humbling and liberating. Because when people say, all right, so Kejano, what are you going to do about this? I say, I I, I don't know. We have to figure it out.
0: (laughs) Oh. So you, you you brought it up. So I think we should talk about food for a minute. Oh, uh, anytime. Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it's it's interesting because there's there's some people within the Catholic sphere that have picked this up, right? Certainly Father Leo Hug has picked this up with his grace before meals. Um but when we when we look at at scripture, and we can start in scripture, but certainly in the Catholic tradition, right? Jesus himself becomes the bread of life. He is born into a a manger, into a feeding trough. So many of his miracles, especially his largest ones, involve feeding people. He tells us that he is the bread of life and that we will not be truly nourished unless we receive him. And yet, and I think part of this goes back to what you were saying about your upbringing, right? That the family meal was such an integral part of- Culture at the time, and now we see that families eating together is becoming less and less normative uh, on a on a daily basis, right? So, can you say a little bit more about how food for you has been a touch point of the faith, and and what can we do as not only as young people, but what can we do as the church in this in this 21st century? to bring food back into the conversation
1: that we have about the faith? Uh, It's essential. It's absolutely essential that we figure out a way to to do that. And why do I say that? Um, Because when I look back on my upbringing, when we gathered to eat together as a family, particularly on Sundays, it wasn't so much... To, to, to share the, the, you know, the great food. My mother was a great cook, the great food that she would p- produce. I mean, literally, it was amazing. But it was the time when we could actually talk to one another, which sometimes meant yelling at each other. It sometimes meant fighting with each other. And sometimes it meant even crying with each other. But it was the community that food created that was actually the greater gift. And You mentioned before the domestic church. Well, what type of church is a church that doesn't come together? And and perhaps one of the lessons that I have to learn now is, you know, when young people get together, they do get together for brunch or lunch or dinner, but they also just get together for coffee at a Starbucks or somewhere else or a Dunkin' Donuts, and we honor that too. But when people come together and use food as the reason they come together, it's a powerful moment of encounter. It's one of the great touch points where you can encounter Christ, right? And and therefore, we can't lose that. We can't lose that. We can't become a, a sea of just individual persons who just share a common roof. And, and, and not to sound as—I I certainly don't want to be de- judgmental. Please, God, because I have enough to answer for. But— if a family says they're too busy, well, then there's something wrong. They are they're making mm. the wrong choices. It's as simple as that. No one's going to come out from outside your family to say you have to sit down together and just have coffee together, or or, or, a, or a snack together, if you or a meal together. You have to decide that that's the priority. And unfortunately, Brian, you know more people than I do in this world it's becoming more and more the norm and comfortability that people don't do that. And they're losing much more than they're gaining. Right. One thing for people to consider, you mentioned the the miracles and the manger, but when the Lord chose a sacrament that would be the privileged conduit for the grace of his death and resurrection, he chose a meal. Every single person who believes in Christ should never escape that fact. Because if the ecclesial family is constituted by a meal, then the domestic family needs to do the same thing. Right? Yeah. If you're a good cook like you are, then it's icing on the cake. (laughs) (laughs) Right? But you don't have to be a, 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 a you know accomplished chef. It, it's it the food is important, but it's not the definitive reason, right? right? It's the community. Absolutely, absolutely.
0: So um, I have I have often thought uh, that uh, you and I should start working on a book together about uh, food and faith and how to bring food and fellowship back into the daily
1: life of the church. I'm just saying. No, I, would, Pop, to, I would love to. Remember what Pop used to say. My dad used to say three things, all in Italian, of course, but he would say three things. There are the three Fs, food, family, and faith. And family is, is what creates the connection between food and faith, whether it's the, it's the ecclesial family or the natural family. Your family is your family when there's faith and food together. That's awesome. Right? that would be a great book oh absolutely i'm just saying all right we'll connect on that
0: after so the the last thing i want to ask is a question that that really i think we're going to ask most if not all of our guests and that is what suggestions or advice would you give to someone who questions whether or not they can even have a place of
1: leadership in the church okay i i think by everyone needs to understand that by virtue of our baptism and by virtue of the natural gifts and talents that god has given every single one of us every single one of us has an obligation to assert leadership and leadership means taking the initiative for the glory of christ it does not necessarily mean holding an office or holding a title or receiving an honor because the lord said Clearly, that was not what he meant, but it is to to offer whatever we have for the sake of someone else is exercising leadership in the church. And you could do it in grand ways, and you do it in quiet ways. But it is the antidote to what is becoming, unfortunately, the cradle of the secular, post-Christian world we live in. That it's that the, the, mode, the mode of success supposedly is self-interest hmm. when it's not, that's, that's the recipe for frustration. So leadership, if you discern you have a gift or a talent, then you have to discern how to use it. And sometimes that means volunteering for a ministry is volunteering for a service position. It could mean creating one. It could be coming to your pastor, coming to your bishop, coming to your university chaplain, coming to whomever and saying, I have these gifts and I want to use them. Help me to figure out how to use them. And there is no shortage of opportunities to exercise that leadership in the church. Because in the end, if I may just end with this, exercising in the church is like basic training where it's desperately needed is to exercise them in the world. Hmm. And to be honest, Brian, I am, as you mentioned, all these years of priesthood, now 16 years as a bishop, you as a layman can actually affect greater change in the larger culture than I can as a cleric. And I don't say that as a cop-out, I say that as as a blunt assessment of where we are at. And therefore, a true leadership in the church, meaning the church, the whole church, you can actually play a more pivotal role in the transformation of the world than I can. I'm here to serve you. Or as my theology teacher said to me a thousand years ago, he said, the ministerial priesthood exists for the sanctification of God's people. The priesthood of the faithful exists for the sanctification of the entire world Hmm. so there's no shortage of leadership my friend amen
0: Mm -hmm. amen well that is a beautiful way to end and so bishop frank
1: thank you so much for joining me on this first episode of an infinite ways thank you for the invitation it's a great honor and thank you for your great ministry and i look forward to visiting right because we owe each other dinner Actually, I was gonna
0: you know, <laughs> I was gonna ask that once we stop recording when you're when you're in town next. Yes, uh, like. Awesome. Well, if anyone would like more information about the Catholic Apostolate Center, please visit www.catholicapostolatecenter.org, where we have resources free to share in the hopes of spreading the gospel. And in the words of our patron Saint Vincent Pallotti, may the charity of Christ urge on.